Hi, my name is Shelby. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carly, and the New Testament reading is found in 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. But you must continue with the things you have learned and found convincing. You know who taught you. Since childhood, you have known the holy scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John five thirty-six through 40. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and open our eyes so that we can see Jesus today. And we ask you to come and open our ears so that we can hear the word of God, the voice of God today. And Holy Spirit, we're asking that you open our hearts because we want to do more than learn today. We want to be drawn to you. We want to become like you. So do these things, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Morning again, everybody. We are in part two of a series we started last week called Tuned In. And it's this, uh, the whole series is about learning to listen to God. And so we've come out of the series on the Nicene Creed where we've been reminded that we have an ancient faith. Well, this series is all about reminding us that we have a living faith. And so this, it's about learning to hear God. And last week, you know, one of the things we did was we, we rehearsed from Genesis to Jesus, all the ways that God shows himself to be a speaking God. And we talked about him calling the world into being. And we talked about him calling after Adam, even after the the, the sin or the rebellion in the garden. This is not a God who turns away, but comes after and begins calling after. And how all of the Old Testament 
is the story of this speaking God calling out, uh, calling back to his people until, of course, we come to Jesus as the very word of God made flesh. And so we rehearsed that last week and we said, you know, in a very real way, we could say Jesus is what God has to say. When we're wondering about what does God have to say to me or about my life or about this or that, Jesus is what God has to say, the very word of God. But Jesus himself said, look, it's okay. In fact, it's better that I'm leaving because the Holy Spirit is coming. And the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity is God living inside of us. Now we have not just the teaching, but the teacher living inside of us. And it's the Spirit who helps us see Jesus. We talked about all this last week, how the Holy Spirit helps us see Jesus, helps us continue on the mission of Jesus. And we've kind of laid the groundwork, almost an overarching framework for this series to say this is how we're going to talk about it. Well, next week we'll talk about how to discern God's will. Most of the time when we talk about tuning in or hearing God, the questions are always about decisions. What should I do about this or that? So we'll, we'll try to wrestle with that next week. And the week after that, we'll talk about what it means to listen to God through others, through a community of friends and, uh, and family And then after that, we'll talk about, on Family Sunday, the 22nd, we'll talk about how we can learn to be attentive to God through the everyday life, the chaos of life and the quiet, the stillness of life and what that might look like. And then finally, when we get into Advent, we'll actually wrestle with the question of what happens when God is silent. What do we do when we're waiting? And I already had an email about this last week, someone saying, I hope you will address this, and I fully plan on doing that. Because uh, if you are in a season of silence or of waiting, this series isn't meant to be um, shaming to you. In fact, I want you to know that you're in good company. Many of the saints have gone through prolonged seasons of silence and of quiet and of stillness, and that there's something that God quote-unquote, wants to say to us even as we wait in silence. So hopefully we'll get to that by the very end of the series. Today, it's all about how do we listen to God through Scripture. And maybe this comes as a relief to some of you because you were listening last week and you're like, man, all this sounds a little too airy-fairy for me. Can we just get back to the Bible, brother? And, and, uh, and so we, today we're going to talk about that. How do we listen to God through Scripture? Now, Here's the first thing I want to say, kind of the premise for the morning, is that however we perceive Scripture affects how we receive God's voice through Scripture. However you perceive what this book is affects how you will receive God's voice from it. Sometimes people say, well, my Bible says. Well, actually, your Bible doesn't speak. It's a book that you read and then make sense of and speak. So... Technically, we ought not be so quick and forget that we have lenses that we're reading the Bible with. We have biases, we have prejudices, we have perspectives, we have all kinds of things that we bring to the text. And so it's not quite right to say, well, my Bible says, because your Bible and someone else's Bible, what we're all hearing it through is through lenses. So how we, what kind of book we perceive this to be affects how we receive from this book. So I want to start there. What kind of book is this? What kind of book is the Bible? Maybe one of the first things we're tempted to sort of think of the Scripture as is the Bible is a rule book. 
This is sort of uh, maybe the first instinct that we have, for, especially for those of us who are very conscientious, always looking for the list, give me the checklist, give me the guidelines. And so the Bible then is a rule book. Well, as we said last week, there's a lot of scripture that is instruction. Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are called the the Torah because it's the teaching, the instruction. Psalm 1, our Old Testament reading this morning, uh, belongs with a set of Torah psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, all celebrate God's instructions. Certainly, God's instructions matter. We believe that His instructions are the path to life, like the psalmist says. But the whole Bible is not instruction. We'd get in trouble if we all of a sudden read different passages and we're like, wait a minute, am I actually supposed to do that? Like, is that what I'm supposed to live or or be like or do? Are these all just a set of rules? And so we say, well, it can't really be a rule book. Maybe this is a coffee table book. You know, the sort of book that just sort of sits there on display, and then you pull it out when you need a little pick-me-up, right? And you're just, oh, there's an inspirational quote, there's, you know... Is the Bible just a collection of, like, refrigerator magnet quotes? You know, like, well, yeah, you might do okay when you read certain sections of it, but how in the world are you going to get through Leviticus? Not like any coffee table book I've read. Uh, How do you get through Matthew's genealogy? How do you get through Numbers? How do you get through Ezekiel? Bizarro land, right? A wheel within a wheel and all of this stuff. So it's not quite a coffee table book that we are lear- trying to receive inspiration from. So I know, I know, maybe it's kind of a cookbook. Now, nobody actually says this, okay, but, but it's like we think it's a cookbook. Because you know what cookbooks do. They tell you the ingredients and then they tell you the recipe. And then, voila, you have the, the, the thing you wanted. And nobody actually says the Bible's a cookbook, but this is how we sometimes perceive it in church, you know? Because after all, aren't there six ways to have a successful marriage and three ways to raise godly children and seven keys to financial freedom? And if you just mix the eggs with the flour and the sugar, voila, the perfect Christian life. Well, it doesn't take long of being in church before you realize, well, that worked for him, but it didn't work for me. Or someone says, well, this is the three keys to healing in your life. Divine, just memorize these verses, quote these things, add in a mustard seed of faith, and bam. Well, it worked for him. It's not working for me. Why? Why? And so quickly you discover the Bible's not quite a cookbook with recipes or ingredients for life. Maybe then you say, well, maybe it's a textbook. Maybe it's just this place that we receive information. Yeah, we, may listen, we might listen to God, but what we're really hearing is information. Just tell me the stuff. This is all just descriptive. It's the equivalent of reading a, a, a U.S. history textbook. It's just for us to get the information and just, you know, kind of just so we know. Just so you know. The Bible is God's big just so you know book. Is that it? Perhaps we need a fresh way of, uh, maybe a fresh yet very ancient way of approaching this book. When it was compiled, there was a sense of a living drama unfolding. There was a sense that there was God at work in this grand story. Now, we're nervous about big stories in our day. Kind of our postmodern bent is to not believe any meta-narrative. There's no big story. There's just my story and your story and my truth and your truth. And I'm okay and you're okay until we're not. 
And uh, something in us is yearning for a big story. Is there a grand narrative? The Bible invites us to see a drama unfolding, if you will, in five acts. Act one is the act of creation, where we are introduced to a God who creates the world on purpose and with pleasure. Both of those things are important. If you were to compare this to other ancient cosmologies, ancient uh, uh, creation myths, none of them show a God creating on purpose and with pleasure. Most of them demonstrate a God who sort of created accidentally or it was sort of the result of the warring between gods. And either way, there was no delight from the gods in the human planet. It was sort of a, a nuisance, like ants, you know. But act one in, in our drama invites us to see a different story. Act two then shows us that these creatures are quick to rebel. That it doesn't take long before the creature wants to become the creator and says, I want to be like God. And so I'll assert my independence in my own uh, um, life apart from over and against God. And then act three. This is the one we are so quick to skip over. Act three is the drama of Israel. We skip it over because we're like, that's nothing to do with me. Isn't it like creation, fall, Jesus, heaven? You know? No! There's this whole Old Testament that's the drama of Israel. Why does that story matter? Because it's God's way of saying, I always work from within. I don't redeem by throwing answers at the problem. I work by finding people within. And so God calls this man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and says, through your family, I'm going to, make every, I'm going to bring blessing to every family on the earth. And the whole Old Testament, Act 3, is a rather long act, okay? It's that, it's that middle movie that you're like, oh my gosh, the two towers have to be that long, you know? I'm not sure, but... In Act 3, it's the story that drags on because it's trying to tell us something. That this very family, this people, through whom the the whole world was supposed to be saved and blessed and put back together, as it turns out, these people needed to be put back together themselves. They were broken. And so the Old Testament shows us how the, the priesthood are corrupt. You see that by the end of the book of Judges. You see that by the end of 1 and 2 Kings that the, the kings are corrupt. And then through the prophets, you see that even some of the prophets are falsely prophesying peace. And so the whole Act 3 is saying every part of society of this new people of God who are supposed to carry blessing to the world, they themselves are broken. It's, I sometimes use the metaphor of imagine that there was a deadly virus sweeping through America and, 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 and there was one UPS truck that had the, the, the antidote or the vaccine or whatever, the cure on this truck and it was racing to the hospital. All of a sudden, the truck breaks down and as it turns out, the driver himself is infected. It's like a bad zombie apocalypse plot, isn't it? That's the Old Testament. Everybody's infected. And you end on this cliffhanger and you're like, well, who then can rule? Who can save? And when you, if you've pushed through the drama of Act 3, by the time you get to Act 4, it all starts to come alive. Because then you get to Act 4 and you say, well, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. And then it makes sense why Matthew begins his story of Jesus not by saying, 
For God so loved the world that he sent his son, but he begins by saying, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. And he goes through this whole genealogy from Abraham to Joseph. Why? Because he's trying to say, God didn't give up on his plan. He said he was going to use the family of Abraham to bring blessing to the whole world. Well, guess what? The very son of God came through the family of Abraham. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. In other words, Matthew's whole subtext of his story is that Jesus is the completion and culmination of the Israel story. Now, if you read Matthew's gospel that way, you're going to begin to see some different things come alive. You're going to realize, oh, so that's why Matthew tells the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness to parallel Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 years. Except Jesus doesn't give in. And then you begin to see Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. <gasps> that parallels Moses on Mount Sinai coming down with the law. All of these things start to come alive. Why? Because Matthew's trying to tell us something. Jesus is where the story has been going this whole time. Jesus is where the story has been going. Now, again, the story doesn't end with Act 4. It leads us into Act 5, the new people of God. The beautiful thing about Act 5 is Jesus, basically Paul says, look, Jesus, by being the true seed of Abraham, did for Israel what Israel could never do, which was what? Be a light to the Gentiles, bring in all peoples, form a new people that includes uh, tribes and races from every nation in the earth. And Paul says, Jesus has done it. Therefore, there's a new family, a new people of God, and it includes Jews and Gentiles. And for a lot of us in this room, we're saying, thank God, because we're probably not of Jewish origin. And Paul's saying this to say, we are now the new people. You know what this is a bit like? Imagine having, hearing about a history, and you thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And then all of a sudden, that history becomes your history. All of these Gentiles had heard stories of the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, and all. so all of a sudden, they get grafted in, and they're saying, you mean that story is now my backstory? That pre- that's my prequel. Like, yeah, that, that's you. You're connected to this story, which I think is what the new Star Wars movie is all about. But anyway, okay, so <laughs> um, for me, it, in 2010, I, I went to, I sat in this... Um, an elaborate office in Denver and took the final step of my journey toward U.S. citizenship. I had been a green card holder for several years and before that was on visas. And in 2010, I sat in this office and, and watched this video, which was really kind of a moving video montage because it not only showed some of the great sort of highlight reel of American history, but it also showed some, some of the notable immigrants over the, over the centuries, a couple centuries. And all of a sudden, in that moment, I'm sitting there, I take the oath, sign the paper, all this stuff, and uh, I realize all of those stories are now part of my story. And all of a sudden, my story is part of that story. I've learned about Lincoln and Washington and all this stuff, but now all of a sudden, it's like, that's not just like some far-off story. That's actually the drama that I'm in. I am part of the American story. Now, that's a beautiful and moving thing but it cannot even compare to what it's like to being brought into God's story. All of a sudden, you're joining the great line, a 
of all of the sins, just like we talked about earlier today, and you join in. This is where we are. Actually, the Bible glimpses one more act. It doesn't describe it because it hasn't happened yet, but it glimpses it. Revelation glimpses the bonus act, the final act, if you will, new creation. And that's the drama that Scripture carries us through. Now, why? Why say all this? Why approach Scripture this way? Because I think we listen to God through Scripture by locating ourselves in God's story. Part of how we live, how does the Scripture speak, how does God speak to us through the Bible? By locating ourselves in God's story. Now, I realize if I just say this phrase and leave it here, that that's a little bit abstract. You're like, that sounds poetic, that sounds cool, but I still don't really know what that means, you know? And so I want to offer this morning four questions that maybe will help you, even as you're reading the Bible on your own. Four questions that might help you to say, so where am I in this story? And God, how does that help me hear you? First question, you ready? It's almost too obvious to be listed, but it's worth saying. The question is, what is going on? <laughs> what is going on? Uh, you, you laugh because it is kind of humorous. Like, isn't that like sort of basic? No, it's not. You know, the whole health and wealth movement within some parts of charismatic Christianity, a lot of it comes from this verse in 3 John 2. And if you're familiar with that background, you can quote right away what 3 John 2 is. If you're not familiar, you're like, 3 John 2, what's that? 3 John 2 is where John says, brothers, I wish above all things that you would be in health and that you prosper even as your soul prospers. And a whole movement has been formed because God's will for us is to be in health and to prosper. I saw it. It's right there. I wish above all things that you prosper. You've got to prosper. It's prosper, prosper. It's God's will. No, it's John's greeting. I mean, if you just start to step in, what is really going on here? What is 3 John? Well, it's a letter. It's a rather short one. You could read it in a few minutes. And if you read it all the way through, you would discover that John's saying, Hey, church, hope you're doing well. I got a few concerns. <laughs> the end. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it's a letter. I mean, imagine doing this. You get a postcard in the mail, you know. Our daughters several months ago wrote uh, to, um, to uh, William and Kate to congratulate them on the birth of Princess Charlotte, you know. And they got a postcard back. It was amazing. Now, I understand, like, so even a special letter like that. But, but you, don't, you don't open that and say, look at the postcard. Thank you for your letter. <gasps> mm. Mm. So good. Mm. Mm. Just going to meditate on that for a minute. Mm. Hope you're doing well. Wow, 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 wow. Just calm down. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. Anybody? What does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you hope in the future. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Amen, brother. Put it on a magnet. Put it on a bumper sticker. Put it on a t-shirt. Hallelujah. Have you ever read the rest of Jeremiah 29? I'm just curious. Because step one is just what is going on, right? What is going on? If you read the rest of Jeremiah 29, actually... Read the rest of Jeremiah. What you'll discover is that there's these people in Judah, and their priests and their prophets 
are not convinced that anything bad or disciplinary is going to happen to them. And so they say at the temple, they say, peace, peace, shalom, shalom, prosperity, prosperity. Basically, everything is awesome. And Jeremiah is the one sitting in the service crying. It's not true. It's not true. The Babylonians are coming. And they're like, who invited this guy? Throw him out. And they do. They throw him into a well. Right? Like a dry well. Because, because they're thinking, we don't want this. Who invited the Jeremiah downer, you know? And finally in Jeremiah 29, it, the Babylonians have come. And so it's a letter to the exiles. And it's Jeremiah's way of saying, I, I, I'm not trying to say I told you so. There is suffering. There is hardship. There is the discipline of God. But I want you to know that the discipline will not be the last word. That in the end, God is going to bring you a hope and a future. And he is going to make you well in the end. Paul picks up on this. When Paul, the guy who's been beaten and stoned and whipped and all of the stuff Paul suffered, Paul says, for we know that our light and momentary afflictions, they don't sound too light to me, Paul. Paul says these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us eternal glory. That's Paul reading Jeremiah 29 through the lens of Christ and saying it's going to be suffering, it's going to be hardship, it's going to be difficulty, but all of it is nothing compared to the glory that's coming. So in one sense, we're not wrong to take refrigerator magnets of Jeremiah 29, 11, but we're also not getting all that we could get. You're settling for the chicken nugget when you could have the chicken, right? Do you remember those commercials? They're like, look at the chicken, like, where's the nugget on the chicken, you know? It's like, it's, like this, it's very inappropriate. And, I, and it's the same sort of thing with the Bible. Like, where's the nuggets here? It's not, there's no nuggets here. But there's a story that you're being invited into. Okay. Second question. What did this mean for them? I know we're going to get to the question about what does it mean for me? I think we're all too quick to jump to that one. The second question is, is what did this mean for them? Gordon Fee, the, the great New Testament scholar, he's also a Pentecostal guy, amazing, written some amazing things. Gordon Fee used to say, the scripture cannot mean what it never meant. So we've got to first start by saying, what did it mean for them? Uh, how, how are there some idioms here and some metaphors and some things? Now, all of this might be like, dude, this is way about, I can't do this in my quiet time. You would be amazed at the tools that are actually available to you today. There are a thousand and probably more study Bibles for every niche you could imagine, you know. The single woman study Bible, the older man who likes underwater crafts study Bible, the like, I mean, it's just, there's all kinds of stuff. All you need is something that just gives you a little bit of a background and information, helps you know what it meant for them. But I think the third question is the most important. I got Wolverine over here laughing. We're laughing at you, Wolverine. Okay. Um, the third question in, in, this, in, in this journey here is... Um, who is Jesus in the story? Where is Jesus in the story? You heard our gospel reading here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, look, the point of the book is not the book. The point of the book is me. And so Jesus says, you can't read scripture in such a way as to miss me. 
And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In Luke's gospel, Luke tells the story of the disciples in the road to Emmaus. And Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he interpreted for them things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. I mean, that's a podcast I want. It doesn't exist. We have the Holy Spirit to say, Holy Spirit, as I'm reading the scripture, can you help me see Jesus in this? Isn't it tragic that we can spend quiet time after quiet time after or time with the Bible after time, and in all of our reading, walk away with something for me and miss Jesus? Shouldn't the first question be, Jesus, where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Classic example is the story of David and Goliath. We're so quick to sort of say, oh, David, that's just like me. I'm that little underdog kid, and I'm facing down my fears. What's your dream? Go face your giant. Fulfill your dream. I've heard a thousand throwaway sermons on that, and very few that say, actually, the David and Goliath story, I mean, think about it. He, he's the unlikely hero who, on behalf of a whole nation, wins a great victory against a foe that no one thought could be taken down. And then Jesus is called the seed of David. Jesus, who in an unlikely manner goes to the cross, appearing to lose, but actually winning the greatest victory of all over the greatest foe of all on behalf of his people. David and Goliath, if we don't first see Jesus in it, who are we seeing? Same with all of these stories, the Jonah story. Jonah, the story of a a reluctant prophet. That's not just an an exhortation to missionaries to say, don't say no when God says yes, you know. Please don't send me to Africa. It's not the the, the Scott Wesley Brown song, the 1980s, anybody? Okay. Jonah, yeah, I got a few witnesses. But Jonah is meant to make us look forward to the true and better Jonah who sent from God did not run away but ran to her and set his face like flint to her Jerusalem for the joy set before him. Jesus, who when he was faced with the own, his own storm while on a boat, was totally at peace in the storm, not because he was oblivious in his rebellion, but because he was at one with the Father in obedience to him. And all of a sudden, you're reading the Bible not in a way to just kind of pick up some stories and some knowledge and some trivia, but to see Jesus in it. Do you know, actually, one of the best books to help you do this is a children's Bible (laughs) called the Jesus Storybook Bible. We adore this book. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She wrote it in consultation with with Pastor Timothy Keller. And it, it walks you through these stories in such a way as to anticipate Jesus. It's brilliant. And we just, I've, we've actually talked to a lot of adults who've said, I, I bought it. I love it. Did my, it was my devotions for like, you know, a year or whatever. You know. It's not a bad idea. It's a great way to help you see Jesus in the story. Finally, that we get back to the question, who am I in the story? Who am I in the story? So, I, I, okay, what's going on? What did it mean for them? Where's Jesus? What, oh, now, where am I located in the story? How is God speaking to me by helping me find who I am? Well, in the David and Goliath story, maybe there are moments where you're like, well, I sort of sometimes feel like David facing the giants. But then maybe in that moment you can say, but what hope there is to know that actually Jesus has won the greatest victory of all. So whatever giant I'm facing is, is, is nothing compared to that. And actually I'm on the side of victory no matter what this outcome is in life. 
even if I face the giant of cancer and quote-unquote lose, the ultimate victory is still mine because of resurrection because Jesus was the true and better David. You see? All of a sudden, you're able to find yourself in that story in a better way. It also allows you to, to freely confess that sometimes you're not the hero in the story. <laughs> sometimes you're the guy that's messing things up. Sometimes you're Peter when Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, you know? I love reading Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Beautiful reflection on the story that invites us to see how we are the younger brother and the older brother, but that the Lord wants us to become like the father. See, finding ourselves in the story is often more complicated than that. We're not always the hero. Sometimes you're this person and this person and this person and this one, and it's the Lord that works in us. Now, if I stop there and that was all we said, we would easily be tempted to think that hearing God through Scripture is purely a matter of the cognitive, that there's nothing experiential about this. This is totally just intellectual, but that would be wrong because the Word of God, the Bible, is living and active. Our New Testament reading this morning reminds us, it says all Scripture is inspired, God-breathed. I know that sometimes in, in our day or maybe decades before, these long squabbles about is the Bible inerrant or not inerrant, what does inerrancy mean, and all that stuff. You know, for me, I, I prefer to say about the Bible what the Bible says about itself. And what it says about itself is that it is God-breathed and fully reliable to help us know who God is and what it means to be his people. That means we listen to God through Scripture by letting the Spirit breathe his words to us. By letting the Spirit breathe, we were saying, Holy Spirit, you breathed these words at one time, would you breathe them again? So they come flying off the page, settling into my heart, unsettling my heart, if need be, and changing me. Make it living to us today. The Spirit speaks what he has spoken. It's one of the most powerful things we can believe about the Scripture and the Spirit, that the Spirit takes the very words of Scripture which he breathed and speaks them again to our hearts in fresh moments, in fresh situations, moments that we might not have thought to apply to. So I think this... There was a moment where I was talking with a friend about a, a, a very strained relationship. He says, man, it's just it's tumultuous, it's turbulent, I don't, know, I don't know if we can ever establish anything of a relationship again. And in that moment, it's, I said, you know, I wonder if we are living in a bit of the moment where Noah, they're in the ark and it's after the flood, and they send out a bird to see if there's dry land, Right? And first it comes back, there's nothing. Then it comes back with a branch. Then it doesn't come back at all. I was like, I wonder if, if, if in this situation you, you need to send, find ways of testing if the storm is over in this relationship and if there's any chance, right? Now, I know that, that hermeneutically speaking, that's not what the Noah and the Ark story means, Glenn. But that the Spirit was breathing that story in a fresh moment so that it helped us say, I think we're here. I think we're kind of going through something like this. And the Spirit does do that. But I want to say that there, are both, there is both a limitation and an invitation in this. The limitation is that the Spirit doesn't transcend what has already been revealed in Scripture. 
Now, this is very tricky to try to say. Because I don't believe that the Bible contains God. You know, some people say, well, you can't contain God. No, I'm not saying that. But you also can't say that the Spirit is going to reveal something that somehow now contradicts or transcends Scripture. And I'm raising this very limitation because in our day, this is precisely the rhetoric used in the quote-unquote progressive Christianity conversations where they're saying, oh, okay, okay, so here's, it's clearly this is what Paul taught, but the Spirit is showing us a higher law that transcends this. I, I don't know how closely you watch the dialogue, even in the Catholic Synod, where there was, there was this back and forth that even spilled over into the New York Times, where an op-ed piece was written kind of rebuking liberal Catholics, and then the liberal Catholic ac- academics came back harshly, basically trying to censor the, the, the New York Times op-ed writer. It was just kind of a mess. But the rhetoric that's being used is, oh, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit can transcend and reveal new things. And what we are saying is that the church has never thought of the Spirit in Scripture that way. The church has always said, yes, there is more to God than what we can see through Scripture. However, what we will discover of God will not contradict what we know of Him in Scripture to be. Right? And so there is a limitation here where the Spirit speaks through Scripture, but He does not contradict or sort of somehow, quote-unquote, transcend it. But there's also an invitation in this. And the invitation is to discover that whatever you join the Scripture to, you've invited the Spirit to. Whatever you've joined the Scripture to, you've welcomed the Spirit to. This is why we talk about with songwriting, worship songwriting. When you have Scripture in these songs, guess what happens to those songs? The Holy Spirit now gets to breathe them in our hearts. Because it's not just somebody's clever words. It's the very Word of God. Whatever you unite Scripture to, you invite the Spirit to. And that's beautiful. Because now we know, okay, so, so in this moment, if I want to say something profound, but I don't know what to say, I'm going to find a psalm, and I'm going to pray this psalm in this situation. Many, many times, in, in many pastoral settings, people will be like, can you pray about this or that? And I'm always saying, God, would you quicken in my heart a scripture? Because I can just pray something off the top of my head. It might be fine. But I would love it if you could ground me in a, in a text. And then I'll think of a psalm, or something, and I'll say, let's pray these words. Because whatever Scripture is united to, the Spirit is invited to. And I want the Spirit to breathe afresh. One of the old practices, a helpful practice for making your Bible reading not just academic or study or intellectual, is a practice, it's spelled the Lectio Divina. Some people pronounce it as the Lectio Divina. You can say it either way you'd like. And there's many ways of explaining it. I, I think in a very simple sense, the Lectio Divina is the, the divine reading, the, the listening to this speech from God. And it basically is taking a short passage of Scripture and reading it out loud slowly and repeatedly and letting it kind of soak for a bit. So one of my friends in Denver Seminary explains it like very, kind of very simply these three steps. The first time, you're reading it to rest. So let's say you read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you're reading that, and the first time through out loud, you're just coming to rest. Then you read it again the second time, and now you're reading it to receive. 
You're saying, Holy Spirit, is there a line or a phrase or something that you're specifically trying to help me receive today? And then the third pass through the reading out loud, it's almost like, is there something I'm supposed to respond with today? How am I supposed to respond to this today? It's a beautiful practice because it's a way of saying, this isn't just a text that I'm going to analyze This is a word that I'm going to receive. I'm going to rest and receive and respond. Amen? One of the pictures that I've had in my mind for uh, for a while now, since even in my high school years, I remember doing this in in my own personal times with the Lord. and, And thinking of it this way, imagine the picture of the Holy Spirit being like the painter. And the Holy Spirit sits down to paint on the canvas of our hearts, to paint the image of Christ, to help us see Jesus. And the more we soak in Scripture, it's like we're giving the Spirit more paint colors to use. So maybe early on, you're like, well, that's kind of black and white. I've seen the Lord, love Him, it's great, right? And then you're soaking in the Scripture more, and all of a sudden, the picture's becoming more brilliant, more beautiful, more textured, more layered, more nuanced. Give the Spirit more colors to paint with that we might behold Jesus in his beauty and his splendor. Amen?